This is If I Go Missing, a podcast where we tell the stories of those who have gone missing so that they aren't forgotten. And maybe, just maybe, we can help bring them the justice they deserve. I am your host, Megan. And I'm your co-host, Lynn. Are you ready to dive into another story? Always. Let's do it. Let's go. Alyssa Turney was a 17-year-old girl who lived in Phoenix, Arizona. She had not had the easiest life. Her biological father had not been in the picture since she was a toddler. And after her mother died of cancer, she was left with her adopted stepfather, Michael Turney, and her younger sister, Sarah. At a surface level, Alyssa was a normal teenage girl. She had many friends and a boyfriend. She was ready to turn 18 and graduate from high school. She even had a job at a fast food restaurant. However, only those closest to her knew the truth. Alyssa's life was anything but normal. Alyssa went missing from her Phoenix, Arizona high school in 2001 at the age of 17, and nobody has seen her since. The Alyssa Turney disappearance has remained a mystery since the early 2000s. Law enforcement has failed to crack the case. Investigators' jobs were made exponentially more difficult by the fact that the case was not actively investigated until five years after Turney's disappearance. Originally, the case looked like a runaway teen scenario, something we see far too often. In reality, Alyssa's case is now widely considered a case of foul play. Depending on who you talk to in regards to suspects in her case, some will say there are multiple, others will say there's only one. This is the case of Alyssa Turney. By all rights, the story of Alyssa Turney's disappearance should have begun May 17, 2001, the final day of her junior year at Paradise Valley High School in Phoenix, Arizona. As we now know, her case will not begin to be investigated on this day, as it should have. But this is where our story begins. The day begins like any other with her stepfather, Michael Roy Turney, dropping her off in the morning per usual. Then, on this day, he picked her up early to go for lunch. According to Michael on an interview with ABC News, shortly after picking up Alyssa, an argument quickly ensued. Turney would later say that their argument was about Alyssa wanting more freedom, to which she says his reply was, quote, I told you, as long as you're under my roof, you're going to have to check in with Daddy because Daddy's a nervous wreck if you don't, end quote. Turney claimed Alyssa had stormed off while he left to pick up his younger daughter, Sarah who was Alyssa's half-sister, the two of them sharing the same mother. It was Sarah's last year of seventh grade, and she'd spent it at a water park. In an interview, Sarah stated that she does not recall anything odd or off-putting about her father's behavior that day. Michael Turney made life very difficult for Alyssa. Each sister would have a different relationship with their father. The obvious difference in treatment can be seen in the following audio clip from a home movie. The red button. What? Hit the red button now. Hit the red button. Dad, are you kidding me? Dad! Dad! Dad's a pervert. Give me the camera now. (laughs) And we're still recording. And Lisa is stupid moron. Mike was a cool, laid-back dad with Sarah, but with Alyssa, he was more uptight and strict and monitored her whereabouts. He told Sarah he did this because Alyssa needed more guidance and direction in life. 
tensions between Alyssa and her stepfather were always high. Michael used hidden surveillance cameras to watch Alyssa at all times. He recorded all of her phone calls and went through her personal belongings. For example, one time at Alyssa's job, Jack in the Box, he was seen outside with a camera videoing her at work. Now, to most people, this seems very confusing, but to Alyssa, it was just the norm. Alyssa says she's being recorded because it's her first job, but it's not even the first day. The first day had already been recorded. This is just a random day at work. You got me in trouble, Dad. I do that. Cause that freaking asshole Mike, he come, he looks and he goes, "That's illegal. You can't. He can't do that." And I was like, "That's my dad." Still, there's signs posted all in the office. I was like, "Like my dad's gonna do anything?" I was like, "It's my first job. My dad's video cameraing me." He's like, "So that's illegal. Tell him not to do that." I was like. He's a prick. Hate that Which one's Mike? The one I was talking to you? No, the one, I don't know, the one that drives that nice-ass Mustang. Let me drive. Which one's Mike? He spoke to her in a very demeaning way, often calling her stupid. Worst of all, he sexually assaulted her for most of her life. The night Sarah found out her sister was missing, her dad had picked her up from a friend's house. He asked her to call her sister because she wasn't answering. When Mike and Sarah returned home, Sarah entered the house and ended up finding Alyssa's phone ringing on her dresser. Her belongings were spilled out on the floor and there was a note left behind. The note stated that Alyssa had decided to spend the summer in California. There had been talk of her blaming Sarah for her running away and she said that she had been saving her money to leave. There was no search for Alyssa the night she left. She was not even considered a real missing person. Michael was frantic to his family, telling them he thought Alyssa was in great danger, but he told police he knew she was fine and that she was with her aunt in California. This was not surprising to Sarah at first because Alyssa actually did have an aunt in California who she had talked about going to live with recently, as you know, she had not always been getting along with their father. That night, Mike, who used to be a cop himself, called the police to report Alyssa as a runaway. Police opened a missing persons file, but no investigation or follow-up was done. Mike claimed she was a runaway and that he knew her location was in California. A week after Alyssa disappeared, Mike told police he received a call from her early in the morning where she blamed him as the reason she left. She told him she was in California and that she was never coming back. He even provided police with his phone records to prove the call. During the years after her disappearance, Mike started telling family and those close to Alyssa that he thought something terrible had happened to her. In 2006, several years after Alyssa disappeared, the police got a lead from a man named Thomas Heimer. Heimer was in a Florida prison serving time for murder. He had sent police a letter confessing to Alyssa's murder. Police eventually realized the letter was a hoax, but during their investigation, they noticed things were not adding up in this case. In the seven years since Alyssa had gone missing, she had not contacted a single one of her friends or anyone in her family, including the aunt she was supposed to live with. The $1,800 she had in her bank was still there, untouched. Her social security number was also never used, meaning she had never gotten a job or went to school. It became clear to police that this was not a runaway case. Police learned that the day Alyssa went missing, she was not in school the entire day. 
as Mike had picked her up from school near lunchtime, which was confirmed by her boyfriend, John, who said Alyssa had told him she was leaving early but would see him later that evening at the end of the year party. Many of her friends also claimed that she told them the same thing, that she would see them later that night at the party. Mike's version of the story was that he picked her up to get lunch, and when they arrived at home, they got into a fight about house rules, which ended up with her storming off to her room and him leaving to run errands. Police also discovered that Mike documented every incoming and outgoing call to the house. They also discovered that Mike had cameras placed outside of his property. There was even a hidden one in the vent in the living room. When police asked for the videotapes of the day of Alyssa's disappearance, Mike told them he reviewed them and there was nothing to see. When they asked for the audio tapes of that day, he told them that unfortunately on that day, the recorder had been turned off, so nothing was recorded. At this point, police now had enough probable cause to search the house. In doing so, investigators came across 26 homemade pipe bombs and a 90-page manifesto written by Mike himself. In the manifesto, Mike claimed that Alyssa had run away, but he believed she was followed by two men from the electrical union he used to work for. During his time at the electrical union, he was a whistleblower, and he believed that the men took revenge on him by murdering Alyssa. He then avenged her death by killing the two men, supposedly. Police also recovered tons of paperwork and hundreds of hours of audio tapes and videotapes, but they were still unable to find anything from the day Alyssa had gone missing. Mike ended up pleading guilty and serving 10 years in prison for the 26 pipe bombs. He was also declared to have paranoid personality disorder and required to participate in mental health treatment. To this day, though, no one has been convicted in the disappearance of Alyssa Turney. Though there have been no convictions, the family has cooperated fully with police. Well, except for one. Michael Roy Turney has, in fact, never given an official police statement. This is what he told his daughter Sarah when she questioned him about his mysterious behavior. Be there at the deathbed, sir, and I'll give you all the understanding if you want to hear. Why aren't you giving them to me now? Because you've got them now. Then why are you making me this offer to go to your deathbed? <laughs> I don't know, Sarah. What are you looking for? <laughs> I was fortunate enough to sit down and have a phone conversation with Alyssa's little sister, Sarah. She recounted her version of the events and remembering this part of her life, as well as elaborated on some things I had read for myself. This is my interview with Sarah. This interview was recorded over a phone call recording system. Throughout this call, while this system normally works well, it would randomly do beeps. Sometimes we could avoid them and answer questions after the beep. Sometimes the beeps would get in the middle of our conversation, in the middle of us speaking, so we couldn't always avoid them. If you hear random cuts and edits, that is why, and I do truly apologize and I hope it doesn't compromise the quality of this call. I want to say thank you to Sarah for sitting down and talking to me about all of this that I'm sure is a painful thing to remember. As for you guys that are listening to this, please check out Sarah's podcast and her blog where she talks about all of these things that she's researching on her sister's case and please don't forget to check out how you can help. All of these things will be linked in our show notes as well if you guys want to take a peek at them, they'll be right there for you. So what's the first thing you remember from that day? 
Yeah, I mean, of course, I remember like going to the water park um, because it was seventh grade, and I got a brand new swimsuit from the Delia's catalog, and I was, you know, like every other seventh grade girl, I was self conscious of my body, and so um, it was a big day for me. You know what I mean? I, I didn't go to school a lot, and it was the last day, and it was exciting, and I felt really brave, and it was it was a great day. You know, we went to the water park, and then. Um, I got back to the school, and I, I can't tell you whether or not um, I called my dad. I just can't remember. But I ended up walking home to a friend's house, um, which I walked home with them all the time. They were two sisters who I, w- um, I was really good friends with. And, yeah, it was about a five-minute walk. And I also, I'm not sure how long I was there. Um, but I do know that we smoked cigarettes, and then we sprayed each other with perfume. Um, so I got into my dad's <laughs> truck smelling like cigarettes and ready to tell him I had a perfume bite. Um, and I was nervous. And then um, he looked at me and said, you know, your sister's not answering her phone. Will you try to call her? And so I um, used his cell phone. I didn't have my own cell phone at the time. It was just him and Alyssa that had cell phones. And he handed me his cell phone, and I um, called. I also, I don't know how many times I called. I'm not sure if I left a voicemail, um, but she didn't answer. And we got home, which was about like a 10-minute maybe car ride. And um, I don't know who entered the house first, but I entered her room first. Um, And I walked in, and her backpack was dumped all over the ground. And to the left, her dresser and a note um, along with her cell phone. And the note said, you know, Dad and Sarah, who dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to California Sarah, you wanted me gone. Look, now you have it. Um, Dad, I took $300 from you. That's why I saved my money. Uh, Alyssa, something to that effect. How old was she? So Alyssa was 17 and I was 12. So it was the last day of her junior year in high school. Why would she have gone to California? So the thing is behind California is that um, there were a few phone calls exchanged between my father and my Aunt Lynette during that time. Um, and it was um, asked of my aunt if she would take Alyssa in. My aunt lived in California, and my dad called her and said, you know, she's out of control. She's going to say I molested her, all crazy things. Um, and he said, will you take her? And she was like, yeah, I'll take her in a heartbeat. Um, but then he called her back and said, no, Alyssa doesn't want to go. Um, you know, she doesn't really know you. She's not comfortable doing it, whatever. Um, so I think that's where California came from. Uh, but, you know, living in Arizona, like, Going to California is kind of like the holy grail. Like, everybody who grows up here in Phoenix, you think, when I get older, I'm going to move to California. It's just so close and it's so obtainable and it's such a big, fun state, especially somewhere like L.A. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that those were really the factors in her naming California or the note naming California, if you will. Okay. And her backpack being dumped all over the ground, was that something she normally did? Like, I know people who will come in and – just sit their backpack down or whatever. And then I know some who will just like toss it off their back and stuff will go everywhere. Oh, sure. So no, she was really, really neat. Um, her room was always really clean and pretty. And, you know, it's definitely um, why I noticed it because all the papers were all like right in the entryway where you walk. You know, it was a small bedroom in Arizona. The rooms are super small. So you literally walk into it and you have to like walk on them essentially or move them out of the way to even get into the room. Um, so it was very noticeable because, no, she was um, very, very neat. So what happened after that? Did you guys drive around looking for her? No, we didn't. Um, so it wasn't until about uh, 10 or 11 p.m. that my father called um, the police and said, my daughter ran away to her aunt's house in California and she left a note. She's mad at me. And that's how he reported her missing. Um, but in the same breath, he also called 
friends and family and saying, you know, do you know where Alyssa is? I think that she's in immediate danger. Um, but no, we didn't go out and drive at all that night. I mean, you would think you might could catch up to her if you'd gotten straight in the car because how far could she have gone on foot? Exactly. Well, and to your point, um, Alyssa had a, a pretty steady boyfriend at the time. And when my when he came out of work and got a voicemail from my father, you know, saying that Alyssa was gone, and the first thing that her boyfriend did was go out and drive around because, yeah, that's a totally normal reaction. Yeah, I mean, that, that would have been my first reaction, I would think. I mean, I've never been in that situation, so I can't say for sure what I've done, but I would think that would be my first thought. Yeah, I mean, if you're so concerned about your kid, you absolutely get in your car and try to go everywhere. You go to friends' houses, you go to the school, you go wherever you think they might be. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I don't know, getting, going to California just seems like a hard feat for somebody who doesn't have a car. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she would have had to gotten a ride, um, a bus, whatever it may be. And yeah. There's no record of that. There's no camera footage of her leaving the house because we did have cameras inside and out. Like, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to believe that she made it to California. Definitely. What happened after that? Um, so, I mean, really not a lot. The police didn't visit the house. I wasn't questioned. Um Almost nothing. I went on that summer and, you know, kind of had a wild summer and had my own hard time accepting it, if you will. But after that, my dad um, went to California a few times. But I'm sorry, before that, I need to back up. A week later, there was a phone call made from California. Um, Exactly a week to the day. It was at 5 a.m. The call lasted 29 seconds. um, And it was from a payphone in California. Um, this phone call was not captured on our passive recording system that recorded every phone call coming in and every phone call going out for like 30 years. But my father says that Alyssa called and, you know, said some cuss words to him and to leave her alone. And then she hung up. Um, so that's what sparked my father making all these trips to California. Uh, I can't tell you how many it was. I do not remember. I know that I went on one or maybe two trips with him, but other than that, uh, it seems like a normal summer. I was waiting for her to just come back. When did you realize that it was apparent that she's not coming back? I think it became more apparent when school started. I, I obviously didn't lose all hope. I didn't lose hope that she would come back until, gosh, 10, 12 years after she was gone. But um, when school started, I think I realized that it was serious. And I began thinking that something bad could have happened to her. Um, but I still held out hope that, that she would be back. When did everybody start taking this seriously? Because I know it took a while. I mean, immediately I would say my father at least appeared to be taking it seriously. He was panicked about it. He called people. He had me make flyers, the website. Um, he made all those trips, like I said. So in my mind, he jumped into action immediately. But the rest mm-hmm. of the family, I mean, it really just became one of those sad things we didn't really talk about. Um, I mean, we might say, you know, I wish Alyssa was here here and there, but we didn't talk about, like, the circumstances of her being gone. So, yeah, it, it, like I said, it was just one of those bad things that we didn't talk about. But didn't it become, like, really a big thing for the police to start looking into a few years after she went missing? Wasn't it, like, right. a jailhouse confession or something? Yeah. So, in 2006, a gentleman named Thomas Heimer confessed to killing Alyssa um, but he also confessed to killing 21 other women. Um, but, yeah, it was investigated, and it was um, found out that it was a false confession. He had actually never seen a, a real picture of Alyssa. He had only seen um, 
an age-progressed photo, and so once he saw a real picture, he said, no, that's definitely not the girl. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of things that go into that confession, but again, ultimately, it was deemed um, invalid, and more importantly, what it did was spark an actual investigation. So this guy mm-hmm. confesses, and the police look back, and they're like, you know, holy cow, it's been five years, and this girl hasn't come back. Maybe we should, like, actually look into this, and then they started. That's what I thought. I thought it was something like that that kind of really sparked an extra interest into the case. Yeah. I mean, for years and years, I would have told you that uh, the reason that the that I got reopened or, you know, that's in at all was because my father pushed them to. Like, throughout this whole thing, my dad said that the case got looked into because he pushed them to do it. He made them look into it. Um, but meanwhile, it was, yeah, actually this confession. That's interesting. So what happened after the confession? Like, what steps were taken after that? Sure. So um, the FBI actually looked into it, um, and during that time, the FBI twice came to the Phoenix Police Department and said, why aren't you investigating this disappearance as a homicide? And both times, the Phoenix Police Department said, um, there's no body. No body, no homicide, essentially, like, I, I very simply. Um, but um, what happened was they, again, started to look into it. You know, they found that this was a false confession, and they actually assigned uh, two detectives to work on this pretty much full time, um, and they did. I mean, they interviewed so many people, it's unreal, and looked into everything that they could. I mean, granted, a ton of evidence was lost due to the, the time lapse of them investigating. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, you know, things like even we don't have accurate phone records. Um, there's no surveillance from the traffic cams or ATM cameras or school records or so many different things that are unfortunately lost. But um, these two detectives, I think, you know, did, did a pretty good job doing the investigation. And um, they really began to narrow their focus on my father. And then they uh, got a search warrant for our home in December of 2008. Um, they wanted to find specifically the video footage that my dad said existed of the day uh, Lisa left. Um, and they wanted, like, the original note. They wanted DNA from my dad because... Our father would not, and to this day, has not sit down for a formal interview in this case. It's a confusing thing. <laughs> it um, is when you're looking at it from the outside like this, and unless you know how it you know, evolved to how it is today. Oh, yeah. There's just a ton of moving pieces. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they, they served the search warrant, and they didn't find what they were looking for on Alyssa. There was no um, surveillance footage. They did get the original note, um, but they didn't get any of those other pieces that they were really looking for. But they found the largest bomb bust in Phoenix history. There happened to be 26 pipe bombs in our house that my father built, along with, like, 19 um, high-caliber assault rifles, these very large guns. And he had illegal silencers, and he had a van that was rigged with propane tanks to blow. And in his face, they find a manifesto in which he um, he states that he made all these things and created all these bombs in order to um, enact his great revenge on this electrical union that he used to work for. He says that there were two gentlemen from this electrical union that killed Alyssa. So in turn, he killed those two men and was now going to enact his, his great revenge on the union for killing Alyssa as well as like, you know, 40 years of history with this union um so yeah it was absolutely insane what motive would these two men have had for killing right none at all none Mm. um and they looked into the gentleman and they were real people that existed from the union um but both gentlemen died i want to say decades apart if i'm remembering correctly and from natural causes if you will 
Okay. And so the reasoning for getting the search warrant, that was just because of this video that your dad said existed of Alyssa? Um, that and a few things. It was mainly my understanding is because he was not complying. So they wanted to get DNA. They wanted to get the video. They wanted to get the original note. Um, they wanted to get the things that my father wouldn't let them have. So why did he have all of these security cameras and phone recording systems in the house? I mean, who knows for sure what's going on in his head, but um, there's a lot of different factors that go into the surveillance. So, I mean, the passive recording system on the phone existed before I was born. Um, I mean, like 10, 20 years before I was born. Um, and it was something I grew up with and that we all grew up with and that my friends knew about. And it wasn't a big deal. It was something that my dad said that he used for lawsuits. He was extremely litigious and is still litigious to this day. Um, but yeah, so he recorded his phone calls for what he said was for lawsuits. So, you know, no big deal. Growing up, you would turn it off if you knew that you were going to have a naughty conversation with your friends or whatever. If you wanted to cuss or talk about things that you shouldn't be talking about, you just turned it off. It, you know, it's not as if he came over and would say, why are you turning that off or be weird about it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, and then of course it escalated. Um, there was an incident in which um, a gentleman tried to break into the house. We had a trailer stolen. So we got cameras on the outside of the house, which okay. I was like, cool, right? Like, it's the year 1999, 2000, whatever it is. Um, this seems really cool. Like, how fancy am I? Um, so, so it's <laughs> not a big deal. But then uh, he did put a camera inside the vent in our living room. Um, and, you know, going through different witness testimony, um, it, it's apparently uh, widely understood by so many people that weren't me that there were other cameras in the house. Um, people report that there were cameras in the bathroom and in Alyssa's room and, kind of all over. Um, but yeah, I only knew about the camera in the vent in the living room, which again, when I saw it, I was like, yeah, whatever. Like it, it, it just seemed like another quirk, which looking back now is like insane, right? Like how do you not see <laughs> a huge red flag? But for me, I was like, whatever, like dad's crazy. And like nope. I said, I thought it was really cool. You know, we grew up with no money. So um, having a security camera felt like, you know, we were like in a gated neighborhood yeah. really fancy. Um, so, yeah, I and mean, he always had, like, the latest technology, whether it was, like, the newest camera or, you know, like, he was, like, Radio Shack's, like, biggest customer. Like, I'm, I'm sure it was him going to prison for the bombs that, like, made Radio Shack die um, because he had everything. Like, he, w after Alyssa was gone, I asked him to take down the, the camera from the vent. I was like, well, you don't need it anymore, right, because you were watching Alyssa. You're not going to watch me. And um, he was like, yeah, and he took it down. And he gave me a camera detector, which is like a device that like beeps or I don't remember if it was a beep or a light or whatever, but you can hold it up to stuff and it would tell you if there was a, a fake camera or a real camera in there, a hidden one. So okay, like, that's kind of cool. That's cool and stuff. Yeah. Like, that's you know, I'd cool. go around my high school like, oh, there's, a, you know, they're spying on us from up there or whatever. Um, so, again, it was all really like tech forward cool. And, again, you're in the year like 2000, 2001. Like, this is Y2K times, like technology is cool and fun so um yeah I always just thought he had a, a huge interest in that kind of stuff because he didn't work you know he was on disability so he spent all every day at home just playing around so after they searched the house what happened after that like in the progression of the case so after they searched the house um my father goes to prison you know for the bombs of course um and they continue to look into Alyssa's case um they interview more people and um, 
yeah. I mean, do ABC 2020 with us, and everything seems fine. And um, during this time, I eventually kind of come to the conclusion that, that it was my father because I really, really defended him. So the, when the house was raided, the police sat me down and explained to me for 40 minutes how there were no other leads and how all roads lead to my father, how my father was a pedophile and how my father had a child that I didn't know about and all these terrible things my dad. But I couldn't absorb it right then. I didn't hear it. Um, it wasn't until really we went on the ABC 2020 when I heard it again and then I read the hundreds of comments online of people being nasty and being like people are and be, you know, telling me that I'm stupid for believing my father, um, that I started to really think about it. And then it took a few more years of me talking to my dad and me asking my dad outright, you know, why are these discrepancies? Why didn't you tell me she was picked up out of school early that day? Why didn't you tell me A, B, and C, like, what's going on? And he didn't say, like, of course not. Like, how could you think that I'm your father? Like, I would never do that to Alyssa. That's insane. Like, he just avoided the topic and continued to avoid the topic. And, yeah, slowly but surely I came around and I believed what the police believed and what everybody else believed and went to my family and said, hey, I think Dad did this. And, you know, all my brothers were like, yeah, like, we've known Dad did this. What are you talking about? Um, So it was really hard for me. But I, I went to the detectives and I said, hey, you know, I believe it now. How can I help you? And they were like, you know, I'm so glad that you came around. Like, what do you think about this? Uh, have you talked to your dad about this? What about your brothers and this? And, like, kind of reinvestigating again and relaying information between my father to them um, as best I could. And they basically told me what's going to happen is when your father is released from his bomb charges, we will arrest him that day. So that that way he cannot serve uh, two sentences at the same time and serve less time, essentially. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, you're the police. No problem. Sounds great. Love you guys. Trust you. Perfect. Um, And, yeah, so, like, a few days before my father got to prison, I get an email saying that those two detectives that have been on the case for, like, almost 10 years at this point um, were reassigned. And I still thought, okay, well, you know, if their job's done, they want to prosecute. Like, it's no big deal. These guys are done. They're moving on to another case. It makes total sense. Um, and then my father gets released from prison, and they don't prosecute. And I end up having a meeting with them, and I say, you know, what's the deal? And they say, listen, we're not going to prosecute without a body. And I say, okay, um, are we going to look for a body? And they say, no, we don't have the resources. And I say, can I raise money for you to look for the body? And they say, no. And they say, we need a body, we need a witness. And we're going to run a silent witness campaign for Alyssa with a billboard on every freeway in Phoenix, which they did none. And, yeah, I've been battling that battle with the police ever since. Um, Oh, in that meeting, they all told me to get media exposure. They said, you know, we need a body, we need a witness. Um, We'll we'll do all these billboards for you. We're not going to look for the body. And we really encourage you to get media exposure to pressure for prosecution. Um, yeah, ever since then, I've been fighting that fight with them and trying to do every media opportunity possible in order to raise awareness for Alyssa. Okay, so I actually thought I read something or heard something that said Alyssa was found. Has Alyssa not been found? No, Alyssa has never been found. What do you think happened to her? I think that my father did something that day. Um, I don't know what he did, but it wasn't uncommon for him to take her out into the middle of the desert 
and get sexually aggressive with her and for things to happen. They, um, or there's at least two incidences. She reported to friends and family and all sorts of people um, in which that happened. And I think that um, that happened that day. I, it's, it's hard to say because a certain part of me really does feel that it was super premeditated. Um, the note doesn't make sense. If you look at the, the construct of the note, she says, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to California. When in fact, um, my father says the story is he picked her up from school, they got in a fight, and then she ran away. So why doesn't the note say after our fight, I decided to run away? Um, the handwriting experts also say that part of the note was written on a different day, which of course, leads me to believe that it was not written on the day that she left. Um, yeah, I think that he very possibly could have found this note, made her add a portion to it, and then did something really terrible to her. Why did he watch her so closely if he didn't watch you and other siblings so closely? I believe because of that she was being sexually abused. It, it's been documented for Alyssa's entire life. Um, when she was you know, just a toddler, my mother took, our mother took her to the doctor to have her check sexual abuse, and there was scarring confirming that she was most likely abused. And when Alyssa was nine years old, she went to her teacher, who was also dating our father at the time, and said, I'm having sex with my dad. Um, and, you know, from there, the reports only continued. A year before Alyssa was gone, um, two phone calls were made to CPS. Child Protective Services, in which uh, my father my father calls and says, my daughter Elda is going to call you and say that I'm sexually abusing her, but I'm not. Like, what are my rights? Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been documented, and I fully believe that he was trying to keep her quiet. You know, she was, she just turned 17. She would be 18 in the next year, um, and she wouldn't have to be afraid of him anymore. She could take me and leave the house, and he couldn't do anything about it. Um, so I think that he was really afraid that his secret was going to come out. Um, you know, he prides himself on his reputation, believe it or not. Um, he's very egotistical. He used to be a cop. He is used to being, you know, the most charming, smartest guy in the room. And to his credit, a lot of the times he is. He's extremely smart and extremely charming. And so for this secret to come out that he is a pedophile of his stepdaughter would essentially ruin his entire thought. He could no longer be like the hero in his story and this wonderful family man who was, you know, just, um, a victim of so many different organizations over the years if he's the bad guy. So I think he would have protected that reputation at all costs. Even if it costed everyone, Alyssa? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. He is cold like that. Um, even at his bomb trial, you know, they ask him, because during his bomb trial, he says, these bombs were planted. They were not mine. And the judge asks, who do you think planted them? And he suggests that one of his sons did it. He is, um, like I said, he'll stop at nothing to protect his reputation. So what are you doing now to help spread awareness about Alyssa's case? Oh, goodness. Everything I can, um, really. So it, it started off, you know, slow. I didn't really know what to do. I reached out to local news who was not at all interested unless it was, an anniversary or, you know, something major like that. Um, so I started going out to people on YouTube who were a little more receptive. 
And then I started going out to podcasts who were extremely receptive. Um, I actually sat there. My first podcast I ever listened to was Missing Maura Murray, and I listened to it, and I cried. And I imagined a day that there would be uh, someone who cared enough to create a very long format. And, you know, because Missing Maura Murray has dozens of episodes. Um, But, yeah, I listened to it, and I just dreamed of a day that somebody would care that much or be able to get the story out of soul. And slowly but surely, I just did more and more podcasts. What did you decide to do next? So after going out to all these podcasts, I um, was highly encouraged by a lot of the creators I worked with to create my own podcast. And I am... Uh, got every document and detail possible on my sister, and that means um, 3,000 pages of case documents, and I reviewed hundreds of hours of home videos and letters from my father from prison and my old diaries and every single piece of writing that I could, audio, video. Um, I just absorbed myself in it, and I found out so much I didn't know. And this is after two years of doing interviews about Alyssa and me thinking I know everything about the story. And I read all these documents and go through all these videos and I realized I didn't know anything. Um, so yeah, I was prompted to make my own podcast and I started uh, chronicling what happened to Alyssa in painful detail, um, starting from really 1948 when my father was born and how our family came to be and what it was like for Alyssa growing up all the way until she was gone. And um, right now I'm I'm right in my, the middle of my father's bomb trial and there's still 10 years to go. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get as much detail out there as possible because there's so many rabbit holes and there's so much to the story. It's just so big that I wanted to really uh, put it in detail like nobody else could. That's an amazing idea. And is there anything that maybe other outlets haven't touched on that you would like told? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, no, I think everybody does a, a pretty good job of understanding the story, to be honest. I think it's just important for people to realize that even with how many, um, I don't want to say like fame or followers, like it just feels weird, but there's so many people that care about Alyssa's case and I'm so grateful and I'm so honored, but I want people to know that like I still need help, that even though it looks big, I still need podcasts and I still need people signing petitions and I, I just still need help. Um, there's still pressure to be built and pressure to be put on authorities to make something happen in this case. So yeah, I mean, I always like to say thank you, but um, please don't stop. And if you're listening to this podcast, please share it. How can we help? So I am raising money for billboards right now. Um, I'm trying to get them everywhere I can. And um, I say that and I literally have have one in progress right now. But yeah, I'm trying to get billboards. Um, So I am raising money for that because for whatever reason, billboards seem to uh, be really attractive, not only to people actually seeing the billboard, but you tend to get a lot of media from it. So I'm really excited. And yeah, it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, So I would appreciate all the help. Do you think one day you'll actually be able to find Alyssa? I don't know. I mean, her body, I don't know. Um, I don't think my father will give up the real location. But that's not really what it's about. Like, if I never find her body, that's okay as long as we get her justice. That's really the biggest thing for me. Um, As much as I would love to give her 
and proper proper burial and have a ceremony for closure's sake. Um, I really just want to get her justice. I think that that would help everybody the most. That's very noble. So many people, and there's nothing wrong with it, but so many people want to bring their loved one home to the point that sometimes justice gets overlooked. So it's very noble that you're almost willing to sacrifice your own closure if that means getting justice to her. Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick one over the other, it would absolutely be justice. I'm in no offense to people who feel that way. I'm just, I've seen a lot of people go in my life, and Mm -hmm. there's no particular connection to the body. You know, for me, it's about remembering the good times and um, the spirit of that person and, yeah, just, you know, honoring their, their memory. So everybody knows what's the journey the missing person case, Alyssa attorney, the things that happened to her. What do you want people to know that is Alyssa, not Alyssa attorney? You know, what what's her what was she like? What was her spirit like? What does she like to do? What are your fond memories of her? Kind of humanize the case a little bit if you if you, if you will. Because that's my thing in doing this is I like to raise awareness through making making people see that there is a human side of this. It's not just true crime. It's not just something to listen to. It's somebody's life. It's somebody's family's life. It's forever changed. Absolutely. Um, I mean, if you have a mean older sister, that's Alyssa. Um, If you have a younger bratty sister who annoyed the crap out of you, that is also Alyssa to her older brothers. Um, Alyssa was really spunky, and I mean, like, um, like she would mess with the boys when she was younger, spunky, that type of younger sister who's like, I'm going to hit you because I know you can't hit me back. Um, she was just so full of life and so fun. You know, they would end up, like, um, catapulting her off of a seesaw is one thing that happened, and they tied her to doorknob. <laughs> Oh my she God! Get out, and you know like all those things that you do to torture your siblings. That she she eventually passed on to me, which is why I said that she was a mean older sister because she was. As much as we had good times, and I loved her, um, yeah. I mean, she did things like double bounce me off the trampoline and knocked the wind out of me, and then like beat me up because I was making too much noise. Like, again, all things that like you look back on, and those are like the fun memories with your siblings. Um, so I'm not over here trying to say that she was like the nicest human on earth um, because she, she had that side to her and that's what made her fun. You know what I mean? Like all those times of like, like for example, um, in sixth grade, a girl, one of my friends came up to me and said, you just don't have any manners because you don't have a mom. And I went down and I told Alyssa, it happens. And she's like, you know, get ready. We're going down to the playground. You gotta want to take this girl's ass. And I'm like, Oh, like terrified. You know what I mean? that's how it was. It was like, we fought like normal sisters. Um, but when it came down to it, like she had my back and it was very much like I could say, do you know who my, who my older sister is? Like, don't mess with me. Um, and they did. And, um, her reputation <laughs> preceded her, but she was also a sweetheart. Like I remember, um, I got life, you know, he was the one that picked it out of my hair for hours after my father, like shampooed it 12 times. and was like, Oh, your hair might fall out. Alyssa was like, move out of the way, got the comb, did there, and sat there and picked it out for hours. Um, you know, sat there and did my nails. Uh, 
everything in between, she made my Christmases happen. You know, it, it wasn't my father. It wasn't anybody else. It was her sitting there meticulously wrapping my presents and making sure that I had this uh, amazing childhood despite circumstances. Because I grew up when she was there. I didn't know the difference. I never wanted for a mother. I never felt that I didn't have a mother figure when she was there. To me, she was both. Um but that was also really hard on her. So when she, you know, became a teenager, she was also very alternative, if you will. She um, wore the big raver pants, but also with, like, a rainbow bright shirt or a Hello Kitty shirt. And she was just a super cool mix of, like, she listened to Eminem, but then, like, cuddled up with her blue clues blanket and was a total sweetheart. Um, so she was never hardened by everything she went through completely. She just... Yeah, you you couldn't mess with her, but she also had your back, and you know that you could go to her for anything you needed. Um, So she was such a cool person to learn from, and I try to emulate that every day. That's really sweet. And I like how you talk about the good things, but you talk about, yeah, she was was a mean older sister at times. Like so many people, they're like, oh, she was the greatest person in the world. She may have been, but she was also mean at times. Like she was my older sister. I like that you didn't hide a, hide that stuff. Like, you threw it in there, too. Yeah, I mean, it's just about the truth, you know. She she did mean things, but that's what siblings <laughs> do, you know what I mean? Especially when you have so much responsibility, and she's basically taking care of me 100%. Yeah, and I was such a brat. I don't blame her. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, she, she was great. And I imagine we would be great friends today if she were still here. How old were you when you lost your mother? Were you old enough to really remember? Yeah, I was only four. Um, so I have maybe one, two memories of my mother, if they're even mine and not home video memories, if you will. Um, so yeah, I mean, growing up, Alyssa was all of that to me. She was nine, right? Yeah, she, well, she would have been, at, yeah, that month, eight. I would say eight or nine because of um, April, but technically she was eight. Yeah, I mean, she's quite young herself, um, but she she took on the responsibility, and I, I wish I could thank her for it. I think, in a way, you kind of are. I'm trying. <laughs> I always say, like, she would do it for me, and she would do it so much harder. Um, there's a call I haven't played yet on the podcast, um, or it's an in-person meeting with my father, and I tell him, you know, I, I say, I think he brings it up. He's like you said, Sarah, Alyssa would have split my throat in my sleep if I did that to you. <laughs> Um, true. <laughs> she would have gone so much harder and would have been so much more to deal with. Like the police and my father are both extremely lucky that it was her that went missing or is gone today and, and not me. <laughs> it definitely sounds like the mama bear part that she took on. Oh yeah. So aside from you reaching out to anybody that will help you tell her story in your own podcast, how else can we help with raising money? Um, is there anything else you need other than those? No, I mean, and even the money is like, it's great and all, but it, it's all about sharing her story. And that's really number one. It's free to do, it's easy, um, and it creates the most pressure because we come back to them and say, hey, I posted this and they got 2 million media impressions. That means a lot to them, you know. The, mm-hmm. the eyeballs on that speaks volumes. Is there anything else you would like to tell anyone that's listening or anything else you want to add? Um, I mean, I always like to say if you are in a situation that you find is similar to Lisa's, um, that I hope that you find a safe way to get out and know that it's okay to try to get out, even if that means, 
being alienated from your entire family. There are people who will love you and will help you and will treat you right and that you don't have to go through this crazy cycle to keep family secrets. Um, Family secrets have been the root of this entire case and just a huge theme throughout it. And yeah, I encourage people that if something bad is happening in your family, that it's okay to be like me or be like Alyssa or whatever and, you know, try to get out. It really is okay, and there are resources that can help you. And, um, yeah, please do it safely, but know that people want to help and love you, and you don't have to be treated that way. Thank you for listening to another episode of If I Go Missing. I'm your host, Megan, and I put a lot of thought and hard work into these episodes. I write, edit, and produce them all myself, and it means a lot to me that you guys take the time to listen. If you would like to follow us on social media, our Instagram is at if I go missing podcast then we also have our twitter and that one is at megan noel pod if you want to reach out and suggest a case you can do that on instagram or twitter by sending us a dm we also have a facebook page called megan noel podcast and we also have discussion groups for the podcast and the name of the discussion group is if i go missing a podcast